0: I can't separate creation from Jesus. So Jesus goes back to creation, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I can't separate creation from Christ because Christ was there at creation. So he's the one that created Adam. He's the one that created Eve for Adam and did surgery on Adam. You can't separate the members of the Trinity as though God the Father did something, but God the Son did something differently or had a different view.
1: Welcome to the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast.
0: An engaging podcast where we affirm the authority and clarity of Scripture.
1: My name is Ryan.
0: And my name is Brian.
1: Welcome back, listeners. We just finished up the series on transgenderism as part of the Plastic People in a Liquid World topic. And we're going to talk about a different topic today. But before we go there, Brian, I think we have to, right off the bat, jump into the elephant in the room and that is in relation to a major NFL game that took place this last Sunday.
0: I would suggest we just go straight into our topic. Our <laughs> listeners really don't want to hear about that anymore.
1: The Miami Dolphins played the New England Patriots. and Yes,
0: that happened on Sunday.
1: If you are an avid listener to this podcast, you know that I'm a Miami Dolphins fan and Brian is an avid New England Patriots fan. and. If you follow the NFL at all, you know that I have suffered for the last 20 years Mm. with the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick. Okay, here
0: we go. We're supposed to feel (laughs) sorry for you.
1: And I am just grateful that four games in a row now, Miami has come on top when playing the New England Patriots.
0: Yeah, I don't think that Bill Belichick had ever lost to one quarterback four times in a row, but he has now, right? The Tua?
1: Yeah, uh, Elway was one, and... I think there was another one with 3.
0: Yeah, kind of a no-namer. Yeah. Yeah, I congratulations, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you. It it was hard for me to say that. That's the struggle in the NFL. Your team just gets creamed like ours did, embarrassed on the big stage, and then you have that bad taste in your mouth for a week. Yep. It's not like basketball where they've got a game maybe the next night or baseball the next night. Football, you got to wait a whole week. And I kept hearing all these bad things about my team. And I kept thinking, they can't be true. (laughs) They were true.
1: Yeah, offense was sputtering in the preseason, right? Pretty badly.
0: Yeah, confused. We have our old defensive coordinator who's calling plays. I'm still not sure what's going on there. It was a bad day. And actually, the the
1: first text I sent you was, wow, defensive coordinator calling plays for the Pats Maybe this is a good thing because they drove right down the field.
0: Yeah, you were a gentleman <laughs> throughout the day, even in winning. You were a gentleman. I was not feeling it, but but I tried to be a gentleman back, and <laughs> I think we can move on.
1: Yeah, okay. Let's move moving down. on to Pittsburgh. Well, I think uh, we'll have another one of these conversations in about ten to fourteen weeks. Now that game will be in New England. I know. So maybe there's a different result, but I'm thinking it's going to be five in a row.
0: Sweet revenge.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up the transgender topic. Was there something that you wanted to just kind of wrap things up with? That Yeah, I
0: did. I wanted to just remind us after two or three episodes on the topic that really the focus here, I think, as Bible believers, as parents, is to understand this is an attack on our children. And just as a review— Every child that's born is either born a male or a female. It's been like that since the first child was born, Cain, and his brother Abel, and it's continued to this day. We're not just focused on the activist. We want to care for those that are legitimately experiencing acute gender dysphoria. And the other category we talked about was what has been dubbed rapid onset gender dysphoria. That really comes from more media intake and kind of the social suggestion that mm-hmm. takes place, that phenomenon. But the activists are the ones that, I don't want to call them an enemy, but they're the ones that we really want to uh, push back against because they're taking advantage of children. And the third thing I'd say and remind us is our children are trusting. That's one of the things that are that's beautiful about a child, right? Mm-hmm. They're naive, they listen And when we allow a child to hear and to be told that they should just go with their feelings and no matter what it could do in damaging their body long term, having them and encouraging them to make decisions that they're too young to make is a dangerous thing. And so the activists now have placed, and this is how it fits in our whole series, and this will just be the last statement I'd like to make, is those that are their body and their mind line up together, they're referred to as cisgender, yep. cis to be on the right side. In this whole woke ideology, the oppressor versus the oppressed, if your mind and your body line up, you are considered the privileged. You're considered the oppressor, as it were, So those that are not lined up with body and mind, who are either experiencing gender dysphoria or transgender or trans woman, trans man, they are the ones that are considered the victim, the oppressed, and those cisgender, the oppressive or the um, elites, the privileged, aren't allowed to ever speak to this issue. They're considered homophobes or transphobes, I should say, in this category, And this is the ideology that we're against. This is the one we're trying to expose to say that these kinds of teachings, Colossians 2 says, don't allow yourselves to be taken captive. The most vulnerable people that are being taken advantage of in the transgender ideology are children.
1: Yeah. I think about what you said about children being trusting. They're especially trusting when it comes to authority figures. Correct. And so teachers, doctors, etc. that are... Acting as activists, it's a really dangerous thing for our kids.
0: It is. And like we mentioned before, these teenage girls that are becoming such a popular demographic for going trans or experiencing this rapid onset gender dysphoria, most of this is happening as they watch and listen to people be heralded, acclaimed, applauded when they come out as transgender. So the suggestion that they're hearing and seeing is this internal turmoil I might be experiencing for a variety of reasons. Maybe the solution is to come out as transgender and then I'll take puberty blockers and then I'll have access to um, some sex change medication and then ultimately maybe have a sex change surgery. And all of this started with taking advantage of, of someone's age bracket someone's vulnerability because of their uh, lack of understanding about these kinds of significant choices. And then when you find out that in many places now, parents aren't even notified, they can use their different pronouns, different names, they can dress differently. And at times be even taken off campus to get the puberty blockers or the other medications. And the parents never been notified. So How is is that okay?
1: Well, that was a good wrap up. And I think we're ready to take a step into the next topic around plastic people in a liquid world. And I think this ties very closely to the sexual revolution as well. And that's around sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So why don't we do it a little bit differently today than maybe what we've done with other topics. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to ask you some questions that focus on the perspective of the individual that doesn't agree with the Christian's perspective
0: I think that'd be a good idea. Let's just remind our listeners again, the LGBTQ, we've got the lesbian, which would be female homosexuals. We have gay, which refers to male homosexuals, and then bi, which would refer to either sex. So the first three letters of their acrostic is going to speak towards homosexual behavior or sexual orientation. And one of the big things is happening now, and I think this Devil's Advocate will go well. And I think you're good at that. You're good at being the devil's (laughs) advocate. Thank you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm still sour about the game. Um, Can you tell? But these are arguments that are actually being proposed by Christians, by Christians who are wanting to, in the name of love, embrace this ideology and to say, how can we talk about two people who love one another and say that that's sinful? And so there's a very popular book that came out not long ago by Matthew Vines entitled God and the Gay Christian. This has become you know, a New York Times bestseller, yep. but the interesting thing about Vines' book is Vines himself. He's not a liberal. He's actually a reformed, professing Christian hmm. who takes the sufficiency or the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture very seriously. So this is kind of a new one. It's not like your average liberal Christian who's trying to say, hey, we've been saying this all along about homosexual orientation or activity as sinful, but it's not. This is a guy who says he believes in the inspiration and inner of Scripture, has a very high view of Scripture, but he's presenting these arguments, some of the ones that you're going to throw at me right now as a way for Christians to say, maybe we don't need to, um, hold the line that this is sinful behavior.
1: A bit of twisting, which we'll see here in a second. All right. So Brian, there are only six passages in the Bible that you Christians use as what I'm going to call clobber
0: passages, clobber passages,
1: (laughs) specifically clobber passages against homosexuals with so little in the Bible about it. Why are you making such a big deal about homosexuality?
0: Well, good question. First, I would say, and this is not to be sarcastic, but it is a legitimate answer. If you hold that all of the scriptures are inspired, truthfully, God only has to say it one time for it to be binding. So we don't really count up passages and say, "Okay, well, there was once you get past ten, or once you get past fifteen, or one, once you get past a hundred, now now it's binding." So if God said it. It's immediately binding. So I would push back just a little bit on that argument that uh, quantity of, of how many times something is mentioned doesn't necessarily make it more binding than if it's only mentioned a few times. But I would say also those six passages oftentimes referred to pejoratively as clobber passages because sometimes Christians do use them in such a way. That's never how we should use God's word. There are six passages, primary passages, that specifically address homosexual activity, homosexual behavior. However, there are many more passages that mention marriage and God's intention for marriage. In fact, if you placed all of those in the total, now you're well over 25 to 35 passages. So if you're just saying, okay, there's only six passages that speak about homosexuality, That's not the whole picture, because God's intention, his design, his creative activity for marriage are all described in these other passages, and I think they need to be included on the topic. The other thing to remember is that just because there's few passages that specifically talk about homosexual behavior, Ryan, there are passages that are very clear in the condemnation They are consistently condemned this behavior. It's not like they're ambiguous and we're not sure exactly what they meant. Or it was one passage, but it's really obscure. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about people who are baptizing other people for the dead. Now, I have read a slew of commentaries, uh, particularly when I was preaching through 1 Corinthians 15, on what exactly were they doing there. Who was baptizing who for the dead? There's about 15 different views, if not more, hmm. about exactly what that passage means. That's what you call a truly obscure passage that we probably know probably about it. We will not have final understanding to that until we're with Jesus. Yeah. You'll hear people talk about only six passages that condemn homosexuality or speak about homosexual behavior as though they are as ambiguous and as obscure as as the one on baptizing for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. That simply is not true. These passages are consistent, consistent about in this way. They speak about God's original plan at creation. They consistently condemn the behavior. It's not like one passage says that it's okay and that it can be righteous and another says it's not. It's consistently condemning. Um, this kind of behavior. So while there is some truth to, there are six passages, that should not in any way downplay the significance that God consistently condemns same-sex behavior.
1: You had a good argument for that one. We'll get to another question here in a second that I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer, but let's uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast. And if you are enjoying it, make sure you give us a five-star rating. We'd love to hear your comments as well. You can leave those comments within Apple Podcasts, or you can go to our Buzzsprout website and leave a comment there as well. As always, make sure you send us your ideas on new topics we can cover.
0: Don't forget, you can go to scriptureandplainreason.com to our blog, and you can see articles that go a little further, maybe a little deeper on some topics that we cover here on the podcast. You can also go to our Facebook, Scripture in Plain Reason, leave comments, listen to old episodes, or even find links to the blog post at the website.
1: Okay, listeners, we are back, and I'm ready for another question that, as I mentioned before break, I think I got you stumped on this one, Brian. So you're a Christian, which means you are a follower of Christ, correct? That's correct. All right, so... Jesus said absolutely nothing about homosexuality. Red Letter Bible, where all of Jesus' words are in red, you won't see anything in there about homosexuality and how Jesus condemns it. So what do you have to say about that?
0: So why do we make a big deal about it if Jesus said nothing about it? Exactly. Is that essentially your question? Exactly. Now, Ryan, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself a Red Letter Christian? <laughs> <laughs> I ask because there are a group of people that— refer to themselves as red-letter Christians, there's something really of a low view of the inspiration of Scripture by holding on to this position that if it's in the red letters, it's more inspired than the black letters. So they're essentially saying, I follow only Jesus' teaching found for us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a few other places where he's quoted in the epistles, And everything else, I'm not following because it's something less than Jesus' actual words. You are correct, technically, that Jesus never addressed homosexuality directly. But I would say a couple things. First of all, he does refer to porneia. Porneia is a very general uh, Greek word that refers to all types of sexual immorality. It's a very junk drawer kind of word. So whenever you hear, except for the cause of fornication in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, where Jesus speaks about marriage, he's referring there to porneia, any type of sexual immorality. And any type of sexual immorality includes any sexual relations outside of the bonds of marriage. And that would include fornication pre-marital sexual activity, it would include pornography, self-sex, it would include homosexuality, it would include uh, bestiality, any of these sexual sins. So while he didn't mention it specifically, he used that very general uh, junk drawer word for sexual immorality. The other thing I would say is he did speak about marriage, as I mentioned in Mm -hmm. your last question. In Matthew 5, Matthew 19, he goes back to creation. He talks about God's original design, a man and a woman. For this cause shall a man leave his father, and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. So the original intention and in creation of both male and female is repeated by our Lord consistently. So we, we can understand Jesus's view of marriage based on those texts, and by definition, he His view of marriage, going back to God creating the institution of marriage, forbids, bans, as contraband, any type of same-sex activity because of the way of its original design. But we could go further and say, I can't separate creation from Jesus. So Jesus goes back to creation, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I can't separate creation from Christ because Christ was their creation. He is the one who created it all. So he's the one that created Adam. He's the one that created Eve for Adam and did surgery on Adam. You can't separate the members of the Trinity as though God the Father did something, but God the Son did something differently or had a different view. Um, We can't split up the Trinity. Our God is one God revealed eternally in three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. The other thing we got to remember is Jesus is not only their creation but he was the author of these six passages. Specifically, he authored Leviticus. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus helped give us the very word of God. Jesus was also the one who sent judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the sins in Sodom and Gomorrah, when you compare the book of Jude, was this homosexuality that was taking place there. So we can't separate Jesus from creation, Jesus from the books of the Bible. We also need to remember that our Bible is one big story. It's not like 66 different stories. It's one big story. We have creation, fall, cross, redemption, and finally consummation, new creation. That's the big story. We've mentioned that many times on this podcast. So you can't take Paul, for instance, and separate him from Moses. You can't take David and separate him from Peter. It's all one story. Holy men were moved by God to write down the words of Scripture. So this whole idea that the red letters, those words that were spoken by our Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry are somehow more inspired than the Apostle Paul, for instance, or Peter, or David in the Old Testament, or Daniel, is simply untrue and unestablished in the New Testament. And finally, again, I want to say that this whole idea that there is such a thing as red-letter Christians versus black-letter Christians, we don't have the revelation of the gospel in clarity apart from God inspiring the Apostle Paul to write the book of Romans to teach us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not saying that we could not extract enough gospel from the gospels to be saved. I believe that we could, John three sixteen, for instance. But we would not know the glories and have our understanding filled out like we do without the epistles. And that's true also with sexual ethics. So to say that Jesus taught something and Paul taught something different, or to pit Jesus against Paul is to violate a consistent teaching in the New Testament that Jesus, after he was ascended into heaven, the Spirit of God would remind his apostles exactly what he wanted us to know, that he would teach them all things that he had commanded them. And so we believe that perhaps the Lord Jesus specifically addressed homosexuality. And one last thing I would say about that is homosexuality was not a sin that was approved by anybody in the first century. No one said homosexuality is okay not saying it wasn't practice, but there there was no one that had made the argument. So the Lord Jesus is speaking to things in the first century that are relevant, that he's being questioned about. He's being questioned about divorce and remarriage by these two schools of thought. No one's asking him about homosexuality because no one doubted or debated the sinfulness of that activity. And the Lord Jesus didn't speak to it, but he didn't speak to pedophilia either. But pedophilia, obviously, is a sinful activity. And if you use this line of argument that if he didn't name the sexual immorality, the specific sexual immorality, he only used a general term, then you would logically have to say that he also didn't say anything about pedophilia. And so, therefore, that isn't wrong either, because he didn't mention that, neither did Paul.
1: Really interesting response, and I'm surprised, but you... uh Rose to the challenge. Well said.
0: Thank you, devil's advocate.
1: <laughs> Interesting how you were talking about the Bible being inspired by the Trinity, right? By Jesus. And so therefore, the red letter Bible, where all of the words that Jesus said when he was on earth doesn't really make sense because the whole Bible is Jesus inspired, just like it is God, the father inspired. Exactly. The Spirit.
0: Right. And even Pitt members of the Trinity against each other. So you'd have in that situation Jesus talking about God the Father's original design for marriage, the institution of marriage, but you're also trying to make the argument that Jesus believes that same-sex activity, marriage, relationships are okay mm-hmm. in violation of God the Father's original design. Yeah. So that's the pit, two members of the, the Trinity— our one God against himself, which is foolishness.
1: Dangerous, yeah. Great. Well, we are going to continue on with sexual orientation for one more episode, a couple more devil's advocate questions for you. There's an interesting little excerpt from a show that we're going to talk about that I think got a lot of popularity amongst the LGBTQ community. But I think this is a good place to wrap. So my name is Ryan.
0: And my name is Brian. Join us
1: next time for more scripture
0: and plain reason. God's Word is true, and God's Word is clear.